it is episode 26 and commander banban says hi to everyone it is yet another Quino community broadcast uh myself manfred moser and brian olsen are joined today by mark rover and we'll talk about all sorts of cool stuff including uh the upcoming release that's just about the corner slipping across the finish line hopefully later this week we'll talk about amazon amazon all right i have to get my norwegian dialect <laughs> going better there um we'll also talk about stem ai and lots of in interesting things so how's it going i'm looking forward to this brian yeah going pretty well uh i was i was up late last night kind of cramming in the the notes for this but uh we've got it just across the finish line and i'm really excited to cover the demo for this today uh this has been a project that uh i've been uh looking at for for some time kind of lurking on the uh their the slack channel and uh uh, seeing all the awesome work that Mark's been doing uh, with with this, and so uh, I've been trying to get you know an excuse to basically get my hands dirty and 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 play around with the code a little bit. So I got that chance, and uh, I'll be showing you guys sharing that with you a little bit. Uh, also, just about you know kind of uh, some of the ways that you can contribute to not only uh, Amundsen but kind of the the Trino aspects of this project as well. So lots to look forward to, and and then we're going to hear obviously the straight from the horse's mouth uh, what this is all about. So uh, so thanks, Mark, for for joining us, and, and welcome. Thank you. I'm super glad to be here uh, to share a little more about myself. I am uh, Mark Grover. I am the co-creator of the Amazon project. We'll talk about that, like you said, a lot today. Um, and I am the CEO and co-founder of Stemma, which provides a managed version of the same. So excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. What's what's the uh, so what are the common pronunciations that you hear? With <laughs> like, what are the, what, what are the first, let's go over the wrong ways first. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so the name comes from this Norwegian explorer. And the reason why this name uh, was put on the project because because this project is a data discovery project. Yeah. And um, the idea is that you can explore the data within a company, established trust really quickly. Uh, and this data could be stored in various different systems, including Trino, right? So like you've got so much data and you want to figure out what's trustworthy in here. Yeah, yeah. And we had the session around naming, which was an internal, this was created at Lyft and we had an internal, like maybe five, six members of the team got together. We're like, what, what should we name this thing? Data catalog or data discovery tool doesn't sound like the right thing. Yeah. And we had one person, um, Beto, who had worked as a, in geography, genealogy, Beto was on, our, uh, was on a previous show. We had preset on here a while. Oh, there. really? Okay, yeah. So. Same guy. Same <laughs> guy. So Beto has worked at, uh, worked in geography before in Brazil, and he was like, "Oh, I have the right guy." So if you want to choose like an explorer name, there's this Norwegian person who was the first person to visit South Pole, and therefore the first person to visit both poles. And we're like, "Whoa, that's cool. Let's do this." And that name was Roald Amundsen, right? And so the first, but obviously none of us were Norwegian. We didn't know how to say it. So apparently, like, the the right way to say it is Amundsen. Uh. And the first way we started saying this was Amundsen. So it's a very, like, plain, uh, mellow way. And now, oh, I <laughs> now, yeah. And now, now that's changed to Amundsen. It's like another common way, which is uh, how people refer to that's also, I have changed my uh, pronunciation to that way now. I say Amundsen, which is still not the Norwegian. I think one day we will probably get to a point where we are all saying Amundsen. Yeah. Uh, but uh, we aren't there yet. Even a Norwegian I'm not even going to ask you about the first name of the guy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, you need to get like a Norwegian spokesman that can just like say it correctly enough times and get it out there in the public so that we all start thinking about it the right way. <laughs> yeah. uh, cool. Well, um, yeah, before we, we hop into all of that, uh, let's do a quick uh, uh, announcement or show from the sponsors uh, from Starburst. 
I'm Colleen Tarto. I am the Director of Engineering on Starburst Galaxy. What is it actually offering? So, I mean, I, I think this kind of like builds on some of the open source Trino stuff, but is it doing a lot more? Uh, what what kind of pains is it solving? Could you kind of uh, uh, give us a little bit of insight on, on what actual pain this is going to be uh, uh, alleviating? Yeah, absolutely. And so to, to think about that, I always like to go back and think about what's the difference between Starburst Enterprise and Trino, right? And so I always like to think of Starburst Enterprise as the cool older sibling to Trino. It's a little bit more mature, a little cooler. It's got a, it's got a car. It's got yeah. some cool stuff going on, leather jacket, you know. Um, and Trino is awesome in its own right, don't get me wrong, but Starburst Enterprise is just better and a bit more grown up. And specifically what that means to me is that with Enterprise, you get more. You get more functionality, faster performance, more connectors, more security, better management, better integration into the ecosystem of tools that you already use today, data governance, integration, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but what really speaks volumes to me is that when you use Starburst Enterprise, you get Starburst, right? You get best-in-class support from the folks who work for us, and they know Trino best because they created Trino, and they're con continuing to contribute to Trino. Um, but Starburst Galaxy takes that to a whole other level, right? So one of the pain points is installing, managing, maintaining, monitoring Starburst Enterprise. And so Starburst Galaxy alleviates all that, right? So it's um, a fully managed service. It's Starburst Enterprise as a managed service and more. And one last question. As, yeah. uh going to be any free offerings coming up anytime soon? Is that on the road? Absolutely. We're building out, we've got a free trial. Um, so if you're interested, absolutely reach out to us. We are very excited about it. Um, and then we're talking about sort of a free tier. So like being able to just play around with it in your own environment and see what's what. We'll keep you all uh, up to date on when you can start to play around with Galaxy and Trino uh, for free for just a little bit and uh, get to know this incredible service called Starburst Galaxy. Thank you so much, Colleen. Thank you. All right. Well, uh, we, we haven't quite made it across the finish line with 362 yet, but, but Manfred, do you have anything uh, in terms of like where, what uh, cool, cool aspects that you can kind of give us some sneak peeks uh, coming yeah, yeah. up? Um, so it's literally super close. Like, you know how the development process works is that all the code gets merged constantly, reviews and all that sort of heavy lifting happens. And then towards the end, we call for a release and we put together the release notes and rigmarole that and make sure that they are like, oh, you know, all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. And that's the phase we're in. So, and that has been going on for like a two or three days already now. So. Literally, I'm thinking the binaries might end up shipping today or tomorrow. So uh, we'll see. Uh, but this, of course, I already know what's in there because I can look at the pull request yeah. <laughs> where, where they're writing the release notes. So I, I snuck into and found out a bit more. So what's happening is um, Marius, our uh, ex-guest from Vienna, got a new uh, list aggregation function contributed, which is really cool. So, so the race between you and him and contributing more code is, is on, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's winning for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we have to do this broadcast and all sorts of other cool stuff. Well, we'll talk about it later. There's always more coming, right? Yes. Um, joint performance got again improved and also uh, queries that have a distinct statement in it uh, got improved. There are a couple of changes on the SQL security when you use out the schema as a statement. 
And then uh, for the create drop uh, update and so whatever role statement, we added that in table. So um, that made it a bit more clear where you're creating that uh, role or whatever. So all around a bit SQL security basic improvements. And just to keep in mind, um, with that related to, we also documented sort of all the connectors that support uh, what specific SQL statements they support that's now up to date. And when it comes to SQL security, it's literally the Hive connector that supports that. So uh, it, it really mostly applies to that. Um, there were a whole bunch of bunch of changes coming into the BigQuery connector. If you use that connector, definitely check that out. Should be some interesting things. And then, as always, the performance improvements and, and correctness improvements are also happening on our big fat uh, Hive connector that does everything. This time, <laughs> we improved the Parquet file reading a bit more. So uh, that's been really useful as well, right? So Org and Parquet uh, are getting really kind of both really, really good in terms of performance and correctness and stuff like that. And obviously, those are the, the column formats files that you probably want to use. You don't want to go with JSON or something string based that's a bit slower. <laughs> oh, no, that's going to take you forever. And you're going to be like, why is why is Trina performing like a snail? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's because your files are big, fat strings. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's what's happening. Wait, uh, stay tuned for that. Last obviously. Point. That's, isn't that your team right there putting these uh, SQL support sections? Yeah, that's my team. So we've been ripping into it. And it's been very interesting because um, we also find issues and bugs with that. We're like, so you're saying this works, but this doesn't. And so there's correct, like, there's a couple of things like, you know, we have this new section in the docs that talks about sort of view management and materialized view management and SQL security, right? And what's part of it. And there's some things where it's like, well, it doesn't make sense if you can create a table, but then not drop the table, or you can create it and drop it, but you can't alter it, right? So yeah. there's a couple of things where um, we'll hopefully over the future go forward and improve the connectors to be really consistent that if it can do table management, that includes altering the table, not just creating and dropping it, for example. Yeah. And yeah. then our next project, we already have more projects up our sleeve. Of course, we're documenting push down, um, like, you know, dereference push down, column projection push down, and all these things. And now we're also going to go and document in the connectors which ones actually support all that. So, and, they, and these are a source of, of a huge amount of the questions that we see on Slack, too. All of yeah, this exactly. stuff about how does this push down work in this connector versus that connector, that's going to be like a, a huge time saver for us on the on the Slack side, which obviously we don't mind to do, but it'll be just so much better to have that just right there out there in the documentation. So nobody has to waste their time asking questions or answering questions anymore about that. So that's fantastic. Yeah, uh, I also saw that create drop and roll and I immediately just thought stop drop and roll. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and hide under the table and in a door frame and so on. <laughs> That's yeah. not an SQL statement, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you if you're ever on fire, just think of in table. <laughs> yeah. And um, and now now that we, we we got that done, we can climb out from under the table and talk about data discovery and Amundsen. Amundsen. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, why don't we go ahead and move on to the um, to the concept of the week? All right. I'm too zoomed in now. Hold on. We'll get this. We'll get this working. Oh no! Oh, there we go. There we go. Oh, oh, uh, there we are. All right. Is it? It's still taking. It's. It, I don't know why. I feel like is it streaming like super delayed for you guys as well? 
a little bit. You're just okay. too fast and and, and hoppy. <laughs> I know. Apparently, it's just... it's beautiful now. Don't worry, it's good. Wonderful. So concept okay. of the week is data discovery and Amundsen. So let's see what you can tell us. Yeah, Mark, what's what, what? So if you were to just like take your definition of like data discovery, I, I put a very long convoluted like like uh, uh, in prose, you know, how, how I would kind of talk about data discovery. Uh, but you are the experts uh, uh, as you develop the product around this. So so what would you say, like, uh, you know, if you were to talk about just data discovery as a concept, uh, how would you tell somebody on the street about this? Yeah, totally. And before I get there, I want to share with you like how we got here. Like, why did this become a problem in the first place? So mm -hmm. what's happened over the last 10 years is that we've made a lot of investment in um, bringing data into the organization. So there's things like Kafka, there's Stitch, Fivetran that let you like get more data into the company. Yep. And then there's technologies like Trino that help you store, process this data and access it through SQL and other means. Yeah, then there are consumption tools that like let analysts, data scientists, product managers use the this data in, in data warehouses directly. So you've got Tableau, Looker, Mode, things of that nature. And then we've created a culture uh, of hunger for data-driven decisions, right? So what you've got is you've got some tooling for anal analyzing this data. You've got tools, you've got people in most cases like who are hungry for using this data. And the problem is because there's so much data, there's no good sense for a person who's trying to make a decision with data as to what data is trustworthy. And that problem is the problem of data discovery. So data discovery is the act of finding trustworthy data that I can use for my analysis, decision-making, machine learning model um, by relying on automated means of metadata which already exists in the system. These automated means are who else is using it? How many dashboards are built on top of it? When was the last updated? What are the various statistics around this data set? Um, so on and so forth. So that's, to me, that's the definition of this problem. Cool, cool. And and so you started to kind of uh, run into this a little bit. Could you just give us like the, the backstory? It, so you, you already kind of mentioned a little before you were, you know, mentioning people that, at Lyft, uh, you and Beto, uh, uh, you know, coming up with Explorer names. Uh, what what were the uh, kind of criteria or like criteria and the problems that, that arose? Uh, I, I'll, I'll mention that. We we talked about this. We, uh, me and Paco Nathan, uh, a couple yeah. months back, were talking about your project in particular because we were talking about like you know the same thing. Like Trino uh, is this wonderful tool that seems to solve like so many problems from an engineering standpoint, data engineering standpoint. But then like you know once you actually expose that that endpoint to somebody, then what what do they do with that? And so um, so that's. That was that's been a question that's been on my mind even before like when I was using Trino in a in a previous company and I was just like okay you know like I don't know how to how to share this with everybody except for you know documenting a whole bunch of stuff on a wiki right yeah yeah so then nope. you know, uh, I, so uh, I brought this up to Paco and he's just like you know yeah you know there's a lot of stuff coming down the line with this you know this guy made Mark Grover's doing all this crazy stuff at Lyft so could you tell us about the the backstory there and what what, what you guys came into that yeah totally Paco's phenomenal. Um, I will tell I'll tell you this one story that is uh, that's just like buried in my head uh, very viscerally. Okay. Um, I, I I used to work at Cloudera where I worked on Spark and Hive um, uh, and was a me member of a bunch of open source communities as an engineer. And then um, after that, I moved to Lyft and Lyft uh, was 
uh, an organization that was all on the cloud. So there was no on-premise software. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was mostly consolidated in terms of their data warehousing. And I started spending time with analytics data science users to just understand what their day-to-day -day work looked like. Mm -hmm. and I remember sitting down with an analyst who worked in the ETA team. Now, ETA is the time a Lyft driver takes to get to you to pick you up when you request your ride, right? Yeah. But if you're taking a Lyft app, you open the app, I tell you, hey, Brian, your ETA, your driver's ETA is like four minutes, right? And yeah. then there's a funnel you choose, like your your ride type, you, you then like maybe put in your destination, depending on what version of the app you're using. And then there's the actual time when the driver gets to you. That may be 10 minutes, right? Yeah, yeah. So when someone asked, like this data scientist was actually on working on a project to improve Lyft ride ETAs for drivers. And uh, they were trying to find the source of truth for ETA data in the warehouse. Mm -hmm. So they could compare their new ETA predictions with the old ones and see how much improvement they've had, right? Yeah. But a simple question, and also by the way, like. If you work, you know, if you work for a ride-sharing company, there are really two product mat metrics that matter the most. It's ETA and it's pricing, right? Yeah. And so ETA being one of those top two, like you would imagine finding the source of truth for ETA data would be easy. It'd be yeah. like known everywhere. Everybody could be woken up at three in the morning, be like, tell me what table or column has ETAs. And right there. <laughs> yeah, right there, right? But the problem is that we measure ETA like five times in every session, right? Because like when you open the app, that's one ETA, you go to the funnel, there's a different ETA being recorded. There are models that produce ETAs, but some models were running in the past that have logged data in the warehouse, but are no longer being uh, populated further. And lastly, sometimes you run algorithms and models that run side by side. So there's one that's showing ETA to Manfred at any given time, and the other one that's running in shadow mode and not really showing the ETA to the user, but logging this ETA for testing or like next version purposes, right? Yeah. So if you look at any warehouse and you search for anything related to ETA, any column name that has something to do with ETA, you get well, like 200 entries, right? Yeah. yeah. And, the, and the canonical way to solve this problem has been through like certification that Manfred, you work in the ETA team, thou shall have this volunteer duty on top of your addition, like existing responsibilities to badge a column that is a source of truth for ETA data and keep yeah. it up to date. The problem with modern organizations is that there's there's like there's so much data and this data is evolving so fast that no one person, not even a team of people, can keep up to date with this stuff, right? And so you're crowdsourcing it yeah. in a way, aren't you? I'm I mean, sorry. You kind of crowdsourcing the like like to some degree even like a voting and then you're gathering all that data. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. yeah. Where's and where's the source? You know, the same way it's hard to find the source of truth of, of the actual data itself. But where's the source of truth about the data, right? Like, where's the where's the one place that you go to? You know, I, I remember in my last org, we had we, it was WikiDocs, right? We we did WikiDocs, but everybody had every team had a different process and how they documented their uh, what where what their source of truth was, and nobody got a, onto a common standard about how this this data got exposed. Everybody, you know, some people use these like giant CSV files. Yeah. Uh, the people like just had, you know, kind of their their random drop downs. A lot of teams fail to maintain them because it just wasn't that important. And so, yeah. uh, you know, depending on which team. And so you get mixed results whenever you start searching around in this wiki space and you kind of have to keep bugging the, the teams like, hey, who, who owns this? And sometimes nobody even knew, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
And so there's definitely a, a complex human problem to this. But what I found was in the 200 or so columns that were related to ETA, you could easily rule out 180 of them just based on some automated signals, right? Yeah. So the things that, for example, that um, haven't been updated since last month, they are not the actual source of truth because they, they haven't been updated, right? Things that have dashboards built on top of it, there's an executive dashboard that's powered by uh, the ETA column. That's a pretty good signal for you to consider, right? If yeah. no other, uh, if the only report that uh, used a particular column was in a person's personal repository, that's another really good signal. So yeah. the real question became, can I use all these signals that are coming from my data warehousing system, my HR system around Teams, my uh, dashboarding system, um, and my orchestration system to then power a view of the world where I'm not maybe telling you what is absolutely the single source of truth, like with a guarantee, but I could say like this space of 200, I've reduced it down to 10 and I can even order these 10 and then you go, you know, qu very quickly can figure out what is the source of truth. So yeah. that's the direction um, that that I took at, at Lyft and that the uh, community and the project have uh, continued to take. Very cool. Yeah, and you you mentioned on the uh, or you or or the the community mentions in the in the documentation too. You you call it a page rank, and so you kind of just those signals that you have kind of go in. You know, you essentially could treat those as like kind of the links. You know, like this 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 the fact that this uh, um, uh, power power uh, sorry BI tool or this dashboard is uh, is pointing to this data set or a number of them are pointing to this one data set. That's like a, essentially in in the in the page rank algorithm. That's like a link pointing to that, yep. right? And yep. so. You're uh, you're basically giving it more power. The more things that use it, the more frequently it gets used. Uh, you know, is essentially one one point up to say, yeah, it's, it's this much more popular. It's essentially uh, increasing the SEO uh, value yeah. of that. <laughs> yeah, and we actually weight different kinds of usage differently as well. So if a programmatic usage, sometimes you can schedule a query in a BI tool and runs every day at nine a.m. or whatever. Yeah, that gets one score. But if you ad hoc run a query, like you go to, you know some BI tool and run this query, then that, that score by default, by the way, is like 10 times higher weight than, than a scheduled query. And so, so yeah. we do a bunch of these weights as well in the, in the page rank algorithm. Gotcha. And is that, is that customizable? Cause like maybe depending on the org, right. That might, that might be different on how, on how they work. Absolutely. It's customizable. I think the long term there is to actually, um, to have these weights not be static, but they be dynamic, which is, you know, what, with linear regression or ML will will help us with, but we aren't cool. there yet. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, it is. Uh, how how old is Amundsen as an open source project? I'm kind of curious. Uh, the project was started about three three and a half years ago internally, and then open sourced like six months later. Okay. We were in open source stealth where you put the code on GitHub, but you don't really talk about it for another six months or so. Nice. And then. Um, <laughs> we started talking about it through conferences. I wrote a blog post to another member of the Amundsen team. Um, Tao wrote a blog post and that kind of like pushed us to then do more conferences and talks and grew the community. The community is now over 2000 people. Nice. Uh, it has wow. um, more than 35 companies using it. So the companies that use Amundsen are uh, Lyft, obviously where it was created, but um, Square, ING, Workday, uh, Brex, Asana, the list goes goes on iRobot and so on and so forth. Cool. That's awesome. So get me if I'm if I'm getting this right, you essentially gathering a lot of data into Amazon and then you do analysis and you have your own 
like metadata storage and weighting and ranking and all that sort of stuff. Is that kind of like correct? Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. how how do you manage all that data and where do you store it? Yeah, <laughs> Brian's got the answer. I, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'll let you talk about it. I just wanted okay. to pull it up, and I actually wanted to point out uh, that I, I fixed your uh, I fixed your your um, <laughs> architecture here. I think there was something a little off with one of the data sources. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for fixing that. <laughs> uh, yeah. So so how what you know could you walk us kind of through uh, you know the different parts of this and and you know how from a technical standpoint you know how does sure. it work? Yeah. Uh, it's also funny as I walk this through for for engineers, I walk this diagram top to bottom. Uh, but for for users like a data scientist or an analyst, I'll walk the diagram bottom up. Funny, yeah. Uh, and uh, well, so in this case, I'll do top to bottom. Great. That's, uh, and, uh, that's I think that's a target audience here. Yeah. <laughs> Are you so sure? I'm one. like, hmm, microservices <laughs> front and let's see what that does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, like y'all said, like we the one thing we do is we gather metadata from a bunch of different sources. There are a few key sources we gather them from. So first key sources are data warehouse, um, something like Trino. And the things we want to gather here are information schema like metadata, as well as logs, because these logs are then parsed to generate lineage, to generate um, various other metadata around who the frequent users are, so on and so forth. The second category systems we get metadata from are your dashboarding systems. So these are your Tableau, Looker, Mode, things of that nature. And we get information from their APIs on what dashboards exist, what tables are building, are, are being used to build those dashboards, who are using them, how many times those dashboards get viewed, so on and so forth. A third category systems we get information from are orchestration systems. So we uh, we had the first integration with Airflow where we would get information around what DAG generated what table, mm -hmm. uh, when was this table last updated, um, so on and so forth. And that comes from, um, from Airflow. And then there's a long tail, I would say, of integrations here. So there's an integration with HR systems. So often we can use information around team structure. And then if Manfred and I are on the same team, uh, and I'm joining Manfred's team. Like I could look up what data sets does Manfred use. Like in future, we could push data sets to me that Manfred uses, so on and so forth. So that's like a larger category. There's a few other examples here. Some companies want to associate GitHub files that have the code that's used to generate the table also with there. But I'll, I'll just stop here. So that's like the kind of uh, categories of systems we integrate with. Cool. Then we have an internal ingestion framework which is called Data Builder that ingests this stuff into two uh, data stores. The first one is a Neo4j database, which is a graph database. That's how it started. But we've since then added support for Atlas. So there are companies that are already on Atlas that would want to pull in additional metadata in Neo4j and power some of the downstream services that I'm going to talk about in a moment on top of Atlas instead of Neo4j. Uh, we've added Sorry, um, just yeah. to jump in. Atlas yeah. is the hosted version of MongoDB. Ah, right. That, that right? name is so commonly used that it is not that. That's not the Atlas I'm referring to. I'm okay, referring so to that's Atlas. why I was asking. So yeah. which Atlas are you talking about? Then? Yeah, I'm referring to Apache Atlas, which is a Hadoop oh. ecosystem um, okay. data data catalog data governance project. All right, cool. All right, good. So that's good to understand. Yeah, so that's an Apache. Yeah. That's an Apache. Yeah. Stuff for them. Okay. yeah, that's right. And so uh, the other uh, sort of stores we have added that replace Neo4j are relational databases. Um, 
And uh, WePay was a company that was pretty interested in not having to manage their own graph database. So they added support for a relational database. And then um, we added support for AWS Neptune as a uh, graph store. Uh, and SeedGeek was the company that wanted just to manage that. Anyway, that's all to say there's a graph database where we pull this stuff. And this is the core of all this metadata. This is where you have relationships between tables and columns, columns with other columns, DAGs with tables, people with tables, dashboard with tables. You get the idea. Hmm. On the other side, we have Elasticsearch. Now, this powers our search interface. And this is where all the, the weights we were discussing earlier all go. And uh, the sort of source of all the search and page ranking is here, right? Uh, on top of, or on the bottom in this diagram, but on top of these uh, uh, storage systems are these services that enable other uh, actual useful services like a front-end service that powers a UI or um, an application that's um, generating some data. I'll talk about those in a moment. Um, these services expose endpoints for other services to query. Um, and um, the idea here is that you could use them for a variety of different use cases, not just the front-end application. The most common use is the front-end application. So it's kind of like a Google search system. Is the most common way how people use Amundsen, uh, which is being able to query some data and say like, hey, I'm looking for COVID cases data. Where does it contain? It comes with a search rank order. You go to the table page and you see all information about when was the last updated, who owns it, what dashboards are built on top of it, so on and so forth. Oh, that's really interesting. So, so Amazon. So you you were mentioning Elasticsearch, you were mentioning Neo4j, and then we talked about Atlas. All of these are using different open source licenses. So I'm like uh, confused now. So what what license what license is Amundsen using, and like is that easily like redistributable and usable? Yeah, Amundsen uses Apache V2. Okay, cool. Nice. Yeah, and uh, we are a part of the Linux Foundation. Um, uh, LFAI is the sub foundation we are a part of, okay. and that um, uh, and so our all our licenses are Apache compatible that we use. Cool. Uh, Very cool. cool. The the last thing I want to mention around other microservices, which is like the big reveal that happened for me, was we I was building this data discovery product that would help analysts, data scientists, data engineers become more effective with data very quickly. So you could. Um, operationalized changes, data migration, so on and so forth, very quickly for data engineers. And you could quickly understand what data to use as a data scientist, data analyst. But what I found is in uh, late 2019 is that California came up with this regulation, CCPA, right? And it was the GDPR equivalent of California. And a bunch of metadata that we had collected as a part of this ecosystem uh, was the same metadata that was used that was needed for complying with CCPA, right? And this this metadata allowed us to know what data was in our systems, um, who was using it, and so on and so forth. And so this other services part is the part where uh, one company in particular, Square in the open source community, pushed Amundsen in their direction. And that's the beauty of open source projects is that you as a contributor can push it in whichever way you want, take it, right? So what Square did was they, um, they used uh, Google DLP and sent samples of their data to DLP to then classify data as PII, uh, NPI, PHI, so on and so forth, and then brought those tags back into Amundsen. Then Amundsen was then used to audit uh, whether certain system should have PII or not. And if it wasn't supposed to have PII, they would 
have alerting based on it. So Amundsen became the source of truth around uh, information around classification uh, and what was in the warehouse, helping solve for privacy and other regulatory needs. And that was a that was a great um, reveal that happened as we were working on the project. So the metadata service kind of acts as a bit of an API, essentially. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. That's awesome. That's cool. That's yeah. great. That's a that's a good sign when when an open source project sort of like gets picked up and you you find out that people use it for th stuff that you didn't think of the first place or yeah. like expands the horizon where it was planned for. That's 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 a great sign. So that's and, awesome. and that's really a big part of the point, right? Like you're 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 ultimately trying to source out not only just like you know sharing your code and getting you know people to contribute their code back in to like solve the original use case but it's actually about like getting other people's use cases right and trying to make the product more resilient and and more uh you know all all encompassing so i i think that that's that's you know that's the that's the hope and the the desire for for any open source project for sure <laughs> so um can you can you uh talk to us a little bit now about now that we've kind of gone the higher higher level let's zoom in a little bit uh, yeah. I want to zoom in on date, you know, so so when most engineers that want to interact with Amundsen, um, Amundsen or whatever, I, <laughs> I got to say it the plain way. Um, <laughs> uh, when when anybody wants to interact with uh, um, Amundsen and they, they want to uh, basically uh, pull data out, sometimes they're going to be able to kind of find some of the examples that uh, we have kind of already listed in there that you, or I say we, you have. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that's, um, you know, a good starting point. You'll, you'll probably want to kind of figure out what the, you know, how those examples are set up. And I was doing that literally the last couple of days. Um, and so you, you all have a framework in, uh, in place to kind of facilitate the, the ETL processes that, that, uh, that go from taking those, those, that information scheme and all that metadata out and, and, Pulling it into um, uh, pulling it into uh, the uh, Elasticsearch and Neo4j data stores. So that's called the data builder. Um, and so it looks like uh, there's kind of a, a bit of a process to that. So you want to talk about that and kind of talk about the uh, the the main like job task and ETL uh, pieces that go into that uh, that engineers will have to set up themselves when they uh, yeah. do this. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it's. It's like the the at the logical level, it is any like any other ETL tool. So there's, um, I actually can't read your screen. So let me let me expand this. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, extract, transform, loader, um, and then after that is a publisher. So the way um, that this works is a. By the way, like we have a variety of different connectors. There's I don't I I haven't counted, but there's over maybe 20, 30 connectors, something like that. Yeah, I should have a count at the top of my head. So. There's cases in which you you have a connector that's already doing this for you. All you had to do is plug in your configuration, and then this just happens, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and then there are cases when you have to build your own connector. So, um, in the first case, an extractor, transformer, loader, publisher has already been written for you, and um, your extractor will take in a configuration around, um, you know, what is my Trino or Hive Metastore. Uh, access point. What what are the creds for that? And in some cases, it would take another access point around, like for a dashboard connector, you would find it asking for API um, keys to a dashboarding system, so on and so forth. The transform is uh, is a thing in the middle which allows you to transform some metadata along the way. This is used for cleaning um, as well as any slight transformations that you may want to do. Um, and then what we use. Uh, for better or worse, is CSV files that we end up dumping out of this ETL task 
and then loading into um, Neo4j. So the that's what happens in the loader and the publisher part. Uh, and it's just creating these CSV files that, that get uploaded. Can you talk a little bit about, that was one of the things that just getting into this, you know, and I was looking at these, uh, I, I, I read the definition. It talked about something to do with like an asynchronous something or other, but could you just talk a little bit about the difference between the loader and the publisher? Because I, I was able to get around to getting all this working with just an extractor and loader, right? So if you're just trying to get the bare minimum and just testing things out, those are like the two to totally necessary pieces. But I'm kind of curious to know about the cases like, I, I think the transformer makes sense, but like when would you want to use a publisher specifically and not just a loader? Yeah, um, so that happens when you are like, it's more relevant when you are trying to publish data to another uh, non-Neo4j system, right? Like you're trying to publish to New Neptune or, or, or another system. Okay. Um, um, it also, the, the, the things that we have also tried is like, in addition to Neo4j, you have to publish it to Elasticsearch as well. And right now there's like a little bit of a hop uh, going from Neo4j to Elasticsearch, but like if, if there was to go at the same time, that's the place where we would use that for. Um, okay. I think these are, yeah, so, but most of the time you're just taking a standard configuration. We have great examples on on how, what, what you need to do to configure this and you, you just plug in your appropriate values and run a data builder job. The thing to keep in mind about data builder is that it's a library, which means you run it like a script um, yeah. and then, um, and that gets data ingested. But in any production deploy, you would have to orchestrate this library. So you would have to then use data builder with Airflow or something like that. Which, and you, you I, I also noticed that there's some DAGs like readily available it's yeah. kind of examples as well. So yeah, so if you're using uh, Airflow already, there's already DAGs that uh, that you all provide and as, as really nice examples too. Yep. Cool. Um, Cool. Let's go. I wanted to hop in just showcase, you know, so you, we've been already talking about this a little bit. And let me see if I can zoom out just a smidge. Um, so here's the the kind of model. And this is very, you know, graphy and Neo day style. Right. Um, so. So, yeah, I, 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 this is I'm guessing like really what stores everything that we end up seeing yeah. on the UI uh, and Neo4j's documents. So I'm guessing like you, this is what the model is. You store it in Neo4j, and then you just kind of duplicate over for a search capability. You duplicate those documents over from Neo4j into uh, an Elasticsearch index or something, and then you're able to search on those. Um, but ultimately, Neo4j is the one that's kind of holding the the core model of the data, right? Yeah, absolutely right. And then this diagram hasn't been updated uh, though. So for example, there are dashboards in this diagram now that don't appear. Yeah. You can have ML features now in Amundsen, so you can discover what features exist in my organization, just yep. the way you could discover tables. And we have integration with things like Feast uh, yeah. for it that. Updated, by the way, in the documentation, just so everybody knows, I just pulled yeah. this one because it was simpler and I didn't want to yeah, like, yeah. overwhelm people. But this was an old, definitely an older one. That <laughs> that's I that's not on you. That's on us. <laughs> um, yeah. But, you know, yeah, that's that's the diagram. A place we should dig into, by the way, is this column stats. Um, and I'll, I, we, you people will see this in the demo, but we have a place where you can show the profile of a table or a column. And um, that's honestly like always been a little tricky because uh, it's expensive to compute those stats. And many times data warehousing systems have those stats automatically and we should be able to leverage those stats. Yeah, yeah. So I, I would love to learn um, what Trino has here and then you know have integrations where we just power those stats directly from Trino instead of having to compute them ourselves. Yeah, that's and that's okay. So call out so the beginning of the call outs that we have today. You know, this is something that, you know, we're, we're looking into now, um, you know, 
and we'll, we'll get into this a little more as we, we kind of talk through the demo. Uh, as you can see, my, my computer's a little laggy uh, with, with this stuff, so I may not be able to do the demo live today, but I, I am gonna do a recording and basically embed this uh, at some point. And uh, the, the main thing that I, I, I when, when talking from, from Trino uh, standpoint is like, we, we have, uh, we, we pulled data from the metadata. Uh, and so that's actually coming from a Hive Metastore. So I think the, con the contributions here would actually be coming in from the Hive Metastore, um, mm -hmm. at least when we're talking about the Hive connector. There's also Iceberg connector, um, but all the other ones would actually be, so the way I envision it is like the only times you're really having a Trino specific type of connection would actually be when you're, when you're querying the, um, uh, the views. And I think I've, we've already seen this, there's a Presto view uh, one that kind of pulls out the, the views from Presto. We would also need to write one for a Trino view that would pull out the, the Trino view tables. And then everything else would be coming from Hive uh, or, or Iceberg. And that would be the ones that would be primarily based around Trino. The rest, you know, that Trino connects to, if you were talking like to MySQL, that one you're, you're already gonna, you know, Trino may connect to MySQL, but it doesn't actually maintain those those stats or anything like that. I know, I know you know this, Mark, but I'm just wanting to kind of relay this for, for anybody who's thinking about, you know, how, how to, if I'm trying to apply this across my data set, is this gonna be something that I just plug into just Trino? And I, I would argue that you want to just basically connect Amundsen and do all of the scraping individually to all of your in, like uh, in, in distinct data sources, and then you're going to um, uh, like like for instance, if you had a uh, Trino connected to a MySQL, you're going to not try to think about like pulling any type of like information uh, schema or anything from through Trino. You're actually going to want to go directly to the MySQL source. So I wanted to to make that distinction clear. And so yep. what's left is you just have a Hive Metastore and eventually I think we'll, we'll have to also contribute something for Iceberg uh, from, mm -hmm. from our standpoint. Having both of those being able to pull that in and, and for Iceberg, you know, there's a whole bunch of stats that are nested within the actual data structure itself uh, that, that is kind of stored in the file storage and somewhat in the metadata meta layer. But, but going back to the, the kind of example that we're all very kind of clear around is more of the Hive, Hive uh, metadata model. And that one uh, has a lot of stats uh, built in there the same way with glue. And I think like that's, you know, there's, there's column level stats, there's, um, there is uh, table level stats. Is, and there's also, I think um, Manfred, Manfred could probably uh, uh, help me out here, but I thought there was also some based on, um, on aggregations as well, if you're, but no, I, but there's stats like column. Oh no, Manfred, do we, I think we lost him for a sec. Yeah. Level and table level stats do like, you know, like null. Uh, I think I'm back. <laughs> yeah, you're back now. You're back now. You. Okay, it's really weird. I have terrible internet connection for some reason. Um, uh, so does that uh, uh, include like distribution of like null values and like other statistics? Is yeah. It's just column and tables. Yeah. yeah, those those ones definitely help out too. How many null values do you have in this column and 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 this kind of uh, uh, this piece is help here. So my point here in bringing all all of this up is yeah, definitely as part of you know uh, anybody who's interested, just reach out to me or Manfred. Uh, this is definitely something we want to start looking at investing into from the community side. Um, and there's a lot to be done here. So we'll we'll make a couple call outs there. Um, I wanted to feature a couple of these resources that'll be here in the show notes that 
uh, take you to the docs, the GitHub, YouTube, and, and Slack channel. Um, definitely, you know, Mark, Mark, you hold a lot of these uh, office hours. Uh, I, I joined one uh, just a while back, and, and you guys record all of them too and, and put it on your YouTube. So anybody who's looking to break into a Munson, like there is, you're, you're doing a really good job at trying to just bootstrap and, and uh, uh, make sure that you, you're recording and, and keeping all of the resources readily available so that anybody can kind of tap in and use them where, where they need to. So. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, and if we have the time, I'd love to, I know you can show the demo, but I'd love to dig in five minutes and show a quick demo of this thing as to how, what that looks like for our users so people can kind of like crystallize this in their head uh, instead of just- Yeah, I think that would be superb. Yeah, we what we could do, um, I don't know, it's like, again, things are going super laggy and I don't know if this is StreamYard or if this is like uh, uh, potentially some some other uh, weird weird issue going on, on on possibly my end, but um, but, I, I will say, let's make a video. I'm going to make a video of my demo. And then if you want right. to also contribute a demo, Mark, I think that'll be super good. We'll, we'll embed those into the show notes. So you'll have okay. your version and I'll also do the, the, the demo. Um, what we have time for still, though, and I wanted to jump jump into this because I feel like this, this uh, concept has been coming up a lot. And Amundsen, as well as Trino, uh, kind of gets pulled into this. And this is uh, um, this data mesh concept. So... Yeah. Um, so this has uh, been, uh, I, I call it a architecture of philosophy and yes, a buzzword. Um, so, so it is uh, very buzzy at this time right now. You know, people are talking about it just to talk about it. Got a lot of exec levels uh, that, are, that are just kind of saying it and talking about it without knowing what they're talking about. And neither, nobody really knows what they're talking about. That's kind of the, the, the point here. I think that, you know, it's, it's a base set of philosophies and actually a base set of principles that we've laid out here, these four principles uh, created by Jamak Dekhani. Uh, I, don't, I didn't know if I said her last name right, but um, she does. Uh, she, she was the creator of this. She's kind of a consultant at ThoughtWorks, and she, she came up with this as kind of an answer to a lot of the uh, issues that we've been having trying to centralize all of uh, our, our data you know, into either a data warehouse or a data lake and uh, all the issues that come along with that. And, uh, and her approach is trying to kind of keep things decentralized, uh, try to follow uh, somewhat of a mirror to what we do with the service mesh. And, uh, you know, the same way that we have like in, you know, these Kubernetes uh, uh, bits where we have configuration that kind of tells you how things need to get run uh, and, and how to, you know, scale it out and, and, de and, and uh, descale it and, and do all the things kind of automatically. And this will be held and maintained by a particular team that is, you know, following some sort of domain. So let's say they they're doing a shopping cart or or a ETA and in Mark's case, right for for Lyft, uh, you have an ETA team that's handling that domain. They have a particular part of their uh, applications that are being run by some service mesh that they define and they own. Um, in the same way, we're trying to draw a parallel for, with that uh, using this uh, concept called data mesh, um, and and basically have a parallel set of data ownership. And so you're not only you're taking that kind of centralized big data team and trying to decentralize, uh, you know, kind of data members to to those teams. And now uh, you'll be, a, 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 you know, essentially giving giving that uh, power over the uh, data as a product to those teams. So how do you support that and, and actually do that across a, a company? And there's these kind of four principles in terms of how to create an architecture that will also kind of help the uh, the socio uh, the, the social uh, uh, political structures that have to also uh, follow that that there. And so the fourth thing she lays out is, you know, domain oriented decentralized data ownership and architecture. That's a lot. But I would say, you know, the, to make that easier, 
the decentralized data ownership part, I would say is kind of falling under Amundsen's part, uh, kind of showing, you know, who owns a particular product or a particular set of data. Um, and then, you know, the, the decentralized architecture part is kind of where Trino comes in, where we're decentralizing the access and, and, and basically saying like, okay, you have your MySQL database here, you have your NoSQL database here, you have a Snowflake uh, data warehouse over here. And that's fine. You, you do whatever you need to do within your domain to make you successful. And then we're going to have the central point of access called Trino, and we're going to meet you where you're at without you having to move data around or make extra copies so that we can make that happen. Um, so, so that's kind of fulfilling that first tenant. I'm going to pause there and I want to get Mark's reaction to kind of, or, uh, you know, do, do you think that kind of aligns? Or how do you think Amundsen fits into that first principle? Yeah, totally. Um, aligns in my worldview, Amundsen and Stemma both fit in the ownership worldview. I think the way I see it is like you need to provide, there. there's actually an organizational change in, in sort of uh, practice change, but then you need to provide tools to these owners to do what's expected from them, right? Yeah. One is the architecture where Trino fits in. Another one is a place where you can actually go uh, put in information around ownership and manage this the data that you own, right? And that place is Amundsen slash Stemma. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think that that's that's really kind of yeah reason why we, we we're bringing this up now is I think because Trino and Amundsen, we don't make up the entire tool set here. And I'm going to talk about that in the last bullet point. We don't make up the entire tool set that you would need to realize a data mesh, but, but we, I think we we're very uh, solid components of, of what this would be. And so I'll talk about the next one, this data as a product. This one is trying to kind of provide uh, uh, the capability for when you have these domains. So again, going back to Mark's example of the, uh, of the ETA uh, people, they own ETA. And so they, if anybody else needs to have ETA, they need to have a place where, the, again, we, we were talking about there's like 200 versions of ETA out there in the abyss. How do I actually find out which one's the one that's coming from the ETA team and who's owning it and, 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 and taking care of that? So it's up to the ETA to take ownership of that data, not only just the service that le layer that sits above it, but the data itself. And how do I, you know, give them the capabilities to actually expose that? And I think this is really where Amundsen also can come in. Uh, again, it's a piece to that data as a product. It's not the whole thing, but you you basically make the index or the the human aspect where I can find that uh, piece of information to dig uh, on that and and understand uh, uh, where that where that data is coming from and where it where it sits. Um, but data as a product can also, you know, also include uh, pieces like. You know, how do I actually uh, make the standards around that product and the APIs around that product? And that's not neither Amundsen nor Trino, really, other than Trino may be able, you could say, say SQL is that. But but I think there's a little more to that one. Um, Self-service data. Can I, can I pile on to that a little bit? Sure, sure go for yeah. it. I also want to say as a product owner, you, you usually like think of a product that you own, let's say a website. Things that you care about is like who uses the website, how much traffic it's getting, all that stuff. When you build a data set as, an, uh, as a product, you need to know that information as well, like who queries it, how often, if I'm going to have to modify it, who do I notify, yeah. in what ways are they querying it, so on and so forth. So that's also a key component of data as a product. Yeah, and, and this is all things that, you know, again, <clears throat> can come into with, with, uh, with Amundsen as well. You know, you can essentially put 
when you put that, I, 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 we'll show this in the demo later on. Unfortunately, I'll have to keep you guys uh, guessing and waiting uh, uh, for, for this live view just because of this delays in our um, in the stream. But uh, but the, the there is a, a point where you can actually assign you know who owns the the list of people who own the data and uh, and then you can also have people that are you know, like get a list of who's actually using that data and that's that's also uh, kind of uh, very very useful and how frequently that that data is being used. All that's kind of getting exposed through uh through the amundsen ai and that, that kind of helps out from that product standpoint so very good point self-service data infrastructure as a platform I, again this is where i feel like this is where trino kind of comes in is you know everybody's going to have their own uh, uh specific uh data uh solutions and and data platforms and that that they're going to use for their own uh particular domain needs and so trino is there to essentially expose a single source uh to the analyst to uh, and basically be there as a way for anybody who's on one of those domain teams to basically plug into something like Trino and expose it through an, a, that SQL API. And again, it's a standardized piece that everybody pretty much across any org will know. And it basically makes it to where everything get, becomes accessible uh, because you don't need to know a million different query languages. You don't need to know where everything uh, is, is uh, per, you know, how to connect to everything. It's already done there for you in that self-service uh, kind of data infrastructure. Um, and then, you know, the federated computer computational governance, this I would say, you know, is not Trino really much at all. Uh, this really comes down to uh, a little bit of Munson, I think is, you know, you can put a, some of the uh, discussions and conversations. This is a lot of a human element too, by the way, but this can, this can be, uh, Munson can be conserve utility in this uh, bullet point because you, you then are able to facilitate the conversations and actually have down in writing, you know, a kind of a map of your org at that point, your, your data org. And so Amundsen is kind of a, a key tool to get this thing started. But I think there's a lot that there's a lot of tools that just don't exist on the market today, honestly, to, to realize the, the full extent of that federated computational governance. Um, Mark, I'll let you uh, uh, chime in on that one if you have anything to say. Yeah, I would agree with that. I also think there is a perspective here around data discovery products that you should have conversation in the data discovery product and make it searchable and discoverable later. What I've learned um, at Lyft, there's a channel called analytics questions where people come to questions that usually cross domains from a data mesh perspective, mm -hmm. right? And I, in my initial version of um, Amundsen, I pushed these people to have these like conversations in the data discovery product, right? In Amundsen. Yeah. And, um, I learned the hard way that it's hard to change people's behavior, right? And it's better to meet them where they are. And so uh, one of the things that I learned is that you should link the conversations that are happening in existing places to the extent where they're happening in writing into the product instead of forcing people to change their behavior in the product. And that's like one thing that, um, that for example, Stemma does differently is that we have a, have a Slack integration where a Slack bot connects conversations that are happening in Slack that are related to data sets yeah. to the data sets instead of forcing those conversations to happen on, on the data catalog. Uh, that's, that's fair enough. Yeah. It's, it's hard to, you know, the human element is the, it's kind of the tricky part and that's what uh, the uh, Munson and, and data discovery in general is getting into. It's like, you know, it's the same issues that we had years ago when we were figuring out UI and human interaction you know, with, with computers, it, it's, it's like a, a similar type of problem, but sitting on top of like, how do we, you know, get people, how do we get 
different teams that have data that needs to work together. Uh, how do we get them to agree on things? How do we, you know, break down political issues that, that fall in between that? And sometimes, you know, Amundsen kind of is a utility, serves utility kind of to help make that pro progress. But it's also just like, you know, it can't do everything. It's the same way that Trino can't do everything. It, it really, Trino kind of takes the whole human element out of it. It's like saving a lot of engineers time and energy on pipelines, right? Uh, Amundsen goes a little higher and tries to solve a little bit of those problems or at least facilitate the capabilities to have those conversations, but they can't have those conversations for you. And forcing people to kind of go outside of their typical norm of using the tools that they're used to to, to facilitate conversations or, or do those things, it's just, you're gonna get partial amounts of the data. Some people will migrate to the tool, others won't. And so at the end of the day, you know, kind of taking the same approach that Jamak is taking with data mesh, you have to just let the communications and let the, this stuff happen where it happens and then centralize it uh, post uh, and, and uh, uh, pr pr uh, a pre, a wait, I was to say it's a priori. No, it needs to be a posteri. Oh, <laughs> I can't remember okay. the Latin word for it. That, that's um, a word now. Yeah, exactly. A posteri. Um, anyways, let's go on before, I know you have a hard stop here in like three minutes. So Tell us a little bit about what Stemma does, how, how Stemma, you know, Stemma is to me a, the enterprise version of, of Amundsen, and I, I don't I don't know much more about it than that. Can you tell us about like, you know, what Stemma is offering and and kind of, you know, the, the vision and, and what you're all building over there? Yeah, totally. So yeah, Stemma um, provides a, a managed data catalog. There are three things that um, have been inspired by uh, the creation of Amundsen and seeing it develop and evolve uh, that are a core part of Stemma. The first one is that in order to get a lot of rich metadata and uh, power data discovery and data catalog, automated data catalog, you need to have a lot of intelligence and automation. This intelligence is like this linking of Slack conversations to the data catalog. It's intelligence around linking the um, uh, the most common join and filter conditions that are happening on the data set, how it commonly gets used. It's around uh, parsing out the lineage and showing like what data flows from what, what dashboards are built on top of it. So Stemma provides all that automation and integration out of the box, right? And so the richness of metadata you get with Stemma is a lot higher. So the time to value in a user using it, the time to value in actually setting the data catalog up is all much shorter because Stemma takes care of all that. The last thing that Stemma adds is that there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of um, organizational operational work that needs to happen in order to make sure that the catalog is adopted and used within various domains and the functions of the business. And so um, some of that is product work and embedding it in the various systems and places that the organization already has. And some of that is uh, working with, um, you know, uh, users in the within the company and Stemma works with the users to make sure it gets developed. So it, to summarize, there's a managed offering of a data catalog, which has a lot of automation built in. So yeah. we can power rich metadata and reduce the time to value to actually uh, finding data and trusting data for the users within the company. Cool. And uh, for those just listening in, uh, this will be in the show notes anyways, but uh, just go to stemma.ai to, to learn more about that. That's uh, uh, where the uh, the, the uh, um, Stemma's uh, website is. Well, Mark, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to take over your PR of the week because I think we're out of time for you. Uh, thank you so much for, for joining us, and we're going to continue on uh, on the for the rest of the show. Uh, anything else you wanted to say before, uh, before uh, you take off? 
No, my pleasure. As you're all in your data journey, whether it's related to STEM Amundsen or unrelated, let me know how I can help uh, and uh, jo join the Amundsen community. Check out STEMA, uh, STEMA.ai. Thank you awesome. for having me on the show. Great. Thanks so much for being around. Thanks. Thanks. Have a good one. All right. Well, with that, uh, let's go ahead and move on to uh, the, let me, wait, 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 I got to go, the PR of the week. You record that. <laughs> so what what, that. What's the PR today, Brian? So the PR today, uh, this is actually what I wanted to cover with Mark here, but unfortunately, uh, uh, it, he, he had to jump off at the right time. So this is actually a contribution to the Amundsen project. Um, I, I they, they do things in kind of uh, a couple things, I think, in kind of commits. They do a slightly bit differently than we do it on the Trino side. So this is a commit of the week, uh, but it is, I think, actually kind of a uh, how, how they manage their um, uh, their encapsulating encapsulation of uh, the the tickets that they do. So no, this, I think it's a PR. If you click on the number twenty five there, that's yeah, PR it, it was. If you look, so I thought this was index presto views, but that's actually the name, and it's this this giant kind of uh, oh, yeah. It, so so I that's why I was kind of I was wanted to go to this this particular PR, but uh, it includes a couple uh, things. So so this commit in particular uh, is. Uh, is adding in the what they call the Presto View metadata extractor, and so um, I, this was kind of what I was alluding to before. If uh, let, let's just forget about all the other sources other than the, the Hive meta metadata source. So this is primarily the the, the main focus of, of um, you know in terms of the connectors that people care to pull from um, from Trino. Uh, they're looking to get the the views, and again, if you're not familiar with it, what's a Trino view versus what's like Hive views and things like that. Uh, definitely take a look at episode 18. We we talk about views a lot there. Um, so the um, the the main reason why you want to pull data directly from uh, from uh, basically Presto or or Trino is that you want to actually pull out a, a, a view type rather than uh, pulling out the um, pulling out the uh, the Hive Metastore tables. If you're doing, if you want to actually pull out the concrete tables that underlie the actual uh, the Hive um, um, connector, you actually want to use the uh, they they already have a Hive metadata extractor, and I have that linked as well here um, a little further down. I don't know if it was down in the demo or let me see if I can find it here. So I have it uh, linked here. You can actually look at this uh, this extractor that they have. Remember, extractor is the first step that they that is used in those jobs uh, in the jobs for a Munson, and it is basically the the piece that just pulls out the the kind of metadata and schema information. So it makes sense that we're actually pulling all of the metadata out of the hive like the hive metastore, right? Because that's primarily in terms of like if you think about the the Trino database is is primarily the Hive connector uh, connecting to the Hive Metastore and storing it onto your data lake or, or to HDFS. So what this uh, PR did was it's actually concerned about, okay, we, we're getting the, ta the, the solid tables from the Hive Metastore extractor. Now we need to actually pull the, the views out. We want to be able to also see views that are sitting in there. And so this was a uh, uh, one that was added at this particular extractor uh, it's called Presto uh, View Metadata Extractor, um, but but it essentially still also works for Trino because the um, the views that we pull out of the the syntax that we use still on the Trino side um, in the Metastore itself also still uses Presto View versus 
Trino view. That's still something that to be updated and it's still something that we have there so that we're backwards compatible anyways. So, um, so basically this will still work if you run this directly on Trino, it'll just show you whenever you uh, uh, pull it into a month and it would show you a, a Presto logo whenever you see the Presto view. So um, we're, we want to actually, I, I have a call to action um, for, for those that are interested in, in contributing to a Munson. Um, and I will, I, I will be doing a video on like kind of how to set a lot of this stuff up. But I think that we, I, I want to do a quick call to action to anybody that wants to uh, contribute just the Trino images. Uh, we can actually get a similar job like this that would pull out a Trino view. And instead of uh, showing Presto, it would actually show the Trino uh, branding and everything like that. And then the step after that would be we could start building out a lot of that stuff that Mark was talking about before, which was saying like, how do we pull out the um, you know extra column st statistics and things like that that uh, could actually really help out um, you know enrich the enrich the tables and enrich the information that uh, you know could could um, give more context to oh if I you know query this table or if I want to talk to this table this is it's partitioned on this column or if I query this table it's you know it has uh, you know the the statistics are. Um, you know, kind of skewed in this particular direction. So I want to be careful how I, I query this particular thing. And that's that's really inf useful information to know uh, from an analyst perspective. You know, sometimes maybe they even just have those questions off the bat. How many nulls are in this column, like you were saying before, Manfred? Right. So so these these are kind of ways that we can kind of uh, start to think about contributing to a Munson. So please do reach out to me if you're interested in that. Um, I, uh, I, I do think that this is going to be uh, a pretty cool uh, area that we should be investing in, especially as a Munson starts growing and, and uh, you know, we want to start kind of enabling our community to, to uh, utilize, um, you know, data catalogs like this. Um, so uh, final thing I'll say about the, the, um, um, this, this contribution, um, you know, it's a, it's a really good one to kind of uh, get your, your uh, feet uh, wet with. Um, understanding how to set up these extractors. It's a little bit of Python code, but if you start to compare this with a couple of the other extractors, you see that pretty much like the whole part that uh, ingests the data into Elasticsearch and into Neo4j is pretty much standard. Um, you can customize it, of course, if you want to something else, but if you just leave it the way it is, the only thing you really ever have to um, uh, update is uh, the, the extractor part. And we can go into that in a little more in some uh, videos that I will cover uh, on a Munson later on. So, um, with so going, that, going later down the track, I guess we can expand that to get like iceberg views and stuff out of Trina and stuff like that. That's another, materialized views on iceberg and stuff. Yeah, they, they currently have no support for uh, iceberg extractor or anything like that. So that's definitely another area if uh, anybody's interested in, uh, in, in doing contributions there. Um, I'm not going to do the fancy intro because, uh, for, for the demo because really I'm just going to be talking a little bit through the steps. And then I'm going to actually do a video afterwards and post this, right? So um, the basic idea of the demo, this is already hosted. So once um, I get these notes up, uh, the uh, I already have on my Trino Getting Started page a new uh, folder called the Munson. You can go in there, and I already have a Docker Compose set up that will pull up all of the uh, all of the Munson architecture alongside with uh, Trino and MinIO. And then uh, basically, uh, these are steps that I pulled from uh, the Amundsen um, uh, 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 getting started uh, portion. What this does is this pulls all the Python requirements. So you have to have Python 3 to run all of these. And, and again, if you're 
running like this on Airflow and stuff like that, your Airflow would already have a lot of these libraries pre-installed. But if you're just running the the random script yourself, then you just have to make sure you install all these all these requirements. And so, um, so you basically go through this step here to um, to do the uh, pull the Amundsen um, repository, build out the Python requirements and the Python uh, dependencies here, and then um, you'll go and actually create the uh, uh, Trino tables. Um, and then uh, once you've actually created the Trino tables in MinIO, you'll um, you'll then move back to um, the Amundsen directory, run the script uh, that I have in there uh, underneath the assets folder. Um, and again, I can, uh, no, I'm not gonna show this right now, but underneath the assets scripts folder, I actually created my own uh, loader, which is the uh, last part of the, uh, of the, um, uh, of the ETL, uh, job, and essentially the, when the loader runs, it, it it points to the Hive Metastore extractor, and tells the Hive Metastore extractor to pull the data out and load it into a Munson. And then once that that uh, script runs, we're then able to uh, verify that uh, that data exists in Neo4j as well as Elasticsearch, and then you can actually see it sitting up there on the uh, um, on the uh, Amundsen UI itself. Again, check back in here. I'll I'll, I'll Blast this on social afterwards um, when uh, whenever I get this uh, video completed, so that you can actually see all this in action. Um, but uh, unfortunately, due to the lag in the stream today, we won't be able to uh, get to that. And so, um, so, so in, 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 as part of the setup, you basically running Neo4j and Elasticsearch and yep. Amundsen and all of that stack. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty heavy. So one uh, a lot to it, right? Yeah, no note of caution. Make sure you have at least like three to four gig uh, when you're in of memory when you're running this in Docker, and try not to have too many other things running. Uh, it is, you know, it's so all all the all the images considered. It's um, you know just the just for Trino itself. You have MinIO running. You have Trino uh, running. You have Hive Metastore service running, and uh, you have MariaDB running for your Hive Metastore. That's four. And then you have the, uh, for a month inside, you have Neo4j, you have Elasticsearch, you have um, the uh, front end service, metadata service, and the um, front end service, metadata service, the, um, well, there's another there's another uh, service there that I can't think of right now. I think there's also four. So there's about five, I think there's five. So there, there's five uh, for a month and then four for, um, uh, so, so basically you have nine, Nine uh, little containers running all on this, and they're they're a little memory hungry for for quite a, for quite a bit of it. So, anyways, when you run this, um, you know it, it runs very well. It just you just have to make sure that you have sufficient memory. And even in the Amundsen getting started uh, files, they they do have a tale of caution about uh, that that memory stuff there. So, so uh, is Amundsen all written in Python then, like even the UI and those kind of things? Do you know? Yeah, a lot of it is a lot of it is Python. I wouldn't say it's exclusively Python. I can't. I can't talk for every service that they do all of it in, in Python, but um, all of the, the the interaction from a developer perspective, the ETL and um, everything up to, I'm not even sure possibly, I didn't look at the DAGs myself. I did see that they were there, but um, almost everything that you'll interact with on a month's end if you're developing out your own ETL job is gonna be in, uh, all done in, in Python and then, mm -hmm. um, yeah, so so that's that's the typical thing. So you do have to have a bit of a background in Python if you're, um, and and not I'm not a Python guy either. I, I'll I'll point that out. Like it's not so incredibly hard. I think the 
the the ramp up time will take you about a you know some a couple days uh maybe you know again depending on how much time you have to spend on this i'm not gonna put an exact time it'll vary for each person depending on their background but uh it'll, it'll take you a bit of time to ramp up on the framework and getting understanding that that etl setup but once you've done that that overall etl setup uh and, and get to understand how they you know how they define all those pieces you just need to look across like one or two or three it it i think it it starts to click oh okay this is how this is set up and you don't have to be you know like python whiz to to be to yeah, get, yeah. Uh, it just shows also it's interesting like uh, python is definitely a very dominant language in the whole ai and data science oh, kind yeah. of world so if anyone that's in that ecosystem will have some sort of passing familiarity with it already and it, it is pretty easy to read at least anyway so yeah. it's cool yeah, I always use I use Python for constantly for uh, consumption, like I for, for consuming APIs and stuff like that. It's so the requests library they have are, is just so simple and so fun. Um, yeah. But anyways, OK, so um, the uh, the last little bit, um, let's I, I will get you. I promise you I will get you a video uh, before the end of the day tomorrow and then I will blast it on social and you guys can all come check that out. Um, let's move on to the question of the week. All right. So um, the question of the week is uh, we, we actually got this two times last week uh, from from two different people. And so um, and I've seen it. Uh, I, I searched it back when I start to see these questions come in. I, I searched back uh, in, in earlier chats and it's been a fairly common question. So the question is, you know, uh, and this 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 is like a, a pretty dominant theme for uh, various plugins in general. But can I add a UDF? Uh, and and for those that aren't uh, familiar with what UDF means, it's a user defined function. And so I have the uh, link in the show notes to uh, the the documentation to uh, building out these user defined functions in Trino. Um, but you, the way that you typically do this is you'll you'll extend uh, a plugin framework that sits uh, in, in part of our SPI. And, and then that has to get, you know, basically compiled to create uh, the version of Trino that will now contain your UDF. Um, and so... Well, uh, you typically don't compile the whole of Trino, you compile you that... Compile the plugin. Yep. That plugin, which makes a jar file, and yep. then you have to deploy that jar into your server. Yep. And when you deploy that jar, you have to, in order for Trino to recognize it, you have to currently restart in order for it to, to pick up that. And that, that makes sense, right? Like, I mean, Trino as an architecture is a Java application um, and it's a distributed application. So when you have a user-defined function and Trino in a distributed fashion needs to process that everywhere, well, it needs to know about that function on all the workers, right? It can't just like, because Trino schedules things to run wherever, like somewhere on a worker. So you can't have some workers that know what the function is and others not. So they all need to know about it and the coordinator needs to know about it. And so, and in order to restart, the reason you need to restart is because in Java, um, the default is that jar files and like code basically gets loaded at startup time and then just sits there, right? Like you don't, you don't on the fly load more stuff, right? Um, yeah. So that's why you need to restart. Yeah, and, and that makes sense. I, I do think there is, so I, I remember seeing a response from David, uh, I think it was one of the more recent ones was that there has been work to try to make that ha that workable. Like, so at least so yeah. you, 
you can put out like the idea would be the, the ideal thing would be that you you distribute the uh the plugins uh to all the workers and everything still you're gonna have to do that no matter what but the the question would be would do we would we be able to have a dynamic way for basically trina to occasionally run something or maybe you could even prompt something from the the you know uh, the coordinator for it for to to tell the workers or something to hey check your yeah like if if you use like say say for example the Starburst enterprise deployment in our Helm charts or even also probably the Trino Helm charts over time you can do a rolling restart of all the workers right so literally yeah. the cluster keeps on running but the individual workers reboot and reload on um, the other aspect that's something that I think David was also alluding to is um, the user defined functions are currently written in Java, but Java has support for like what's called the Java scripting API and other methods where you can actually in a running Java application define scripts. And that could be an entry point where you can literally sort of like write that function, that user defined function, and it becomes sort of something that's like just interpreted on the fly. Yeah. And then that would not require a restart. So there's there's work to be done to potentially make that happen. But yeah. currently, you have to restart. Yeah, yeah. So I, it makes sense why it's there. It'll be definitely something that you know over time. I think is going to be one of those things that get resolved. I think in general too. Like there's a couple other things that like when you when you add catalogs. That's been another very highly you know requested feature is dynamic adding of catalogs and things like that. Um, and, and so. You know, without having to restart and, and and do that kind of stuff. So, I think those things are are definitely on the roadmap. It's just like you know, and not like on the near near framework roadmap. But I think it's things that we consider that you know are, are things that are worthwhile that are going to be worked on at some point. But it's just when you know when somebody is actually going to work on that, or if, if you know we are able to you know as terms of the, the core maintainers uh, and and uh, you know kind of core contributors start to decide, hey, this is something we should really be focusing on. That's kind of another another question and, and hard to, to determine 100% because again, always always plenty of things to do in, in open source world, right? So yeah. Also, uh, I think what, what you have to keep in mind that it's a very typical question to, to ask by a newbie that just wants to get started. Mm -hmm. But like in the real world, you don't write new user-defined functions yep. that open and you don't add catalogs that often. It's more like an occasional thing every like whatever, a couple of weeks, if that, right? So yep. then the the like urgency to like be restarting that straight away, like having to restart is not really it something that, that's yeah. it's not that important in, in yep. the real world. So that's why it, it there's a lot of noise around it, but in reality it's probably not as important. So not not in production cases no and and so uh so yeah so that's that is another thing to keep in mind but it is from a playing around standpoint even you know just getting somebody yeah, ramped up and, and get they get to you know play it in the sandbox and stuff like that it would be nice to have that kind of capability but it will come i think it'll come and and, and yeah. you know these things pop up almost sometimes mysteriously like wait oh my god you know <laughs> so that's why release time is always a fun time <laughs> so exactly um, cool well, uh, Manfred, do you have anything else you want to cover before uh, we, we hop off? For the no, day? I'm, I'm really looking forward to that demo. That maybe um, Mark was also saying he might just do a little demo as well. Uh, yeah. It'll be interesting to see Amundsen. But for those of you that want to like sort of jump the gun and like learn more, I definitely urge you to check out the Amundsen website as well as the STEM AI. They both look very informative and uh, useful. So there's a lot there. So you should be able to get rolling on your own even but both Brian and Mark's demos will also be very welcome. And uh, look out for them on, on Slack, I'm guessing, right? 
Slack. I'll I'll tweet it. I'll I'll uh, throw it on LinkedIn. Anything anywhere you are, I will be blob, blobbing about it because I think I'm. I think you know this is this is something I've been wanting to get onto for a long time. And now that I I have the demo, I just really am annoyed that <laughs> the streaming was like so tacky today because I'm I, I actually worked pretty hard last night to get this thing uh, uh, rolling. But uh, we'll, I'll, I'll get the uh, I'll get this out really quick. And uh, yeah, I just look forward to it. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll really kind of go over how to actually get uh, involved in this project as well if, if, for those, hopefully, that are interested. Yeah, that sounds good. Awesome. Looking forward to it. All right. Well, see you all in two weeks. Bye. Music for the show is from the Mega Man 6 gameplay album by Shishtof Swabikowski. Don't forget to give us a star on the Trino repository at github.com forward slash TrinoDB forward slash Trino. And for more information on future shows and to find show notes, Check out trino.io forward slash broadcast.